Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 242, The New Jewish Canon. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we hope that you have had a very meaningful high holiday season in this most strange of high holiday years. I expect that perhaps your high holidays involved Zoom services of some kind or live streaming services or perhaps no services at all. And if that was the case, then we certainly hope that you listened to some Judaism Unbound episodes or maybe enjoyed some of the content on Jewish Live. We hope that we were part of your high holiday experience and in some way this year we, we felt your presence. When we release this episode today, Friday morning, it is actually the eve of the next holiday on the Jewish calendar. There are so many this month, the holiday of Sukkot. We want to wish a happy Sukkot for those who observe. And if you don't observe Sukkot or you don't do the traditional things like building a sukkah, I want to give you a sense that you're in some good company in the Bible. On Yom Kippur, I was leading a text study, as I often do for the synagogue that I'm a member of, where we looked at the biblical sources for the high holidays, of which there aren't too many. So actually, that might be an interesting topic for a future conversation. But in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, that's a very late book in the Bible, one of the last books in the Bible. It talks about how after the return from the Babylonian exile, which is after the destruction of the first temple, which is after almost everything that has happened in the entire Bible, A scribe named Ezra comes back to Jerusalem from Babylonia, and he reads to the people living in Jerusalem out of this book called the Torah. And they find out that it says here in this book called the Torah that you are supposed to live in a small hut, in a booth, a sukkah, during the holiday of Sukkot. And it says in the book of Nehemiah that the people had not observed that custom since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua, the son of Nun, was the successor to Moses. So what that means is that nobody had lived in a sukkah. Nobody had observed the custom of building a sukkah since the time that the Israelites had come from the Egyptian slavery, from the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. There's about 700 years or so between that time that's described there, the days of Joshua, son of Nun, and the days of Ezra when they are discovering this commandment. For me, that gives me this feeling of, you know, the kind of innovation that we talk about here. It's actually extremely traditional. It's traditional to leave things behind for a while, even for hundreds of years, if they're not working for us right now. And it's traditional to reimagine new practices based on old practices or that come from important ideas that might make our experience of what we're trying to experience through Judaism more powerful now. In any event, wishing you a very happy Sukkot. And so now we'll turn to today's conversation. We are taking another break, a short break, one week from our series on women and organizations built by and for Jewish women to learn about a new book which has just come out, co-edited by our friend Yehuda Kurtzer, who we've had on this podcast a few times before, and also Claire Sufrin. The book is called The New Jewish Canon, Ideas and Debates, 1980 to 2015. And it's a collection of over 80 excerpts from key primary sources, articles, books, and other sources that have been written over that period of time, 1980 to 2015, basically our period of time, that our guests have identified as particularly important to the Jewish debates and conversations that we're having now or that we've had over that period of time and that have an impact on today. It's a really interesting book, and among the topics that we're going to discuss in our conversation is how we feel about the idea of a canon, of a new Jewish canon, an old Jewish canon. But however you feel about canons, the book is certainly a very interesting and fascinating collection of 35 years worth of writing on the Jewish community and the questions that we tend to address here on Judaism Unbound and lots of other questions as well. So we are really excited to welcome today our guests, Yehuda Kurtzer and Claire Sufrin. Yehuda Kurtzer is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. 
whose writing generally focuses on Jewish history and Jewish memory, as well as questions of leadership and change in American Jewish life. He is the author of Shuva, The Future of the Jewish Past. And our second guest, Claire Sufrin, is Associate Professor of Instruction and Assistant Director of Jewish Studies in the Crown Family Center for Jewish and Israel Studies at Northwestern University. We're excited to welcome them today for what promises to be a really great conversation about whether there should be a new Jewish canon and what might be in it. Yehuda Kurtzer, Claire Sufrin, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great to be back. So I, I want to get into this, uh, your book. I have to start by saying that it made me feel a little old because when I looked at some of the entries and I was like, well, that was like, you know, from 100 years ago. And then it turns out it's like from 1987. I'm like, where, where was I when that came out? Anyway, um, the so so it was actually a really fascinating experience to to look at your book and realize how some of these things that actually seem I, I think it's an overstatement to say ancient but that seem like they've been around a long time or either I've been around a long time or they haven't been around so long so so it's really interesting to to note that and and I guess I, I wanted to start by just understanding a little bit how did this project get started and what was it that you really see this project is trying to accomplish. I guess I'll start because I, I started the project and then Claire came on board relatively early to, to co-edit. Uh, I started this in part because I was teaching a lot of these materials and kind of looking for the textbook that would enable me to take something off the shelf and teach it. So, somewhat similar to Paul Mendesflor and Yehuda Reinhardt's, you know, have this kind of somewhat famous book in Jewish studies, The Jew in the Modern World, which is the textbook of the 200 years preceding our book. And I found myself teaching a lot, of, a lot of these pieces as though they were primary sources. And actually, that even that very divide, what is a primary source and what is a secondary source, was itself worth probing and noticing. Like, actually, uh, a really important essay from 2011 about the American Jewish establishment and its relationship to Israel was starting to feel less like an analysis of the American Jewish community as though it was a secondary source, and actually a primary source that told us a lot about contemporary Jewish life that was worth studying. So that was already happening in my teaching, and I found myself kind of longing for a textbook that would not just put those um, essays uh, or ideas together in one place, but would also poke a little bit at the notion, at the distinction between primary and secondary sources. So for me, it, it actually came very much from, uh, from my own teaching and looking for a resource uh, for that effect. Yeah, and I want to also add that we've all uh, been really lucky, I think, to live through a time of very rapid change. So that something written in 1981 by Blue Greenberg about women and tradition seems ancient because we've seen so much change within her orthodox world in terms of how women are educated, what roles they're able to play, and so on and so forth. So her book seems it's so out of date, and yet without it, we wouldn't be where we are just a couple of decades later. What was your process of going through the the immense amount of material? I mean, I think one of the signs of our times too is just the ubiquity of of writing. You know, there's just so much. Uh, so how do we? How do you kind of go through that and decide? Well, what is canon or whatever? You know, that might be an overstatement, but whatever we're going to call canon right now. How do we decide which are the things that that stand out enough to be included in a book like this? I would love to say that there was a formal fixed process for the making of this canon. And by the way, I think that to note that it wasn't is probably a truth of all formations of canon in the past also. Mm. It, these are not synods of people sitting around and saying, this is in, this is out, a two-week process, the committee is over and it's done. Um, these are iterative, evolving processes. And at a certain point, you have to get the book manuscript to the publisher. And the minute you do, you say, oh my God, we should have done this. Um, a number of the processes that were involved uh, included uh, a number of social media conversations that I curated going back to 2015 of what are the books that have books and ideas and essays that have really informed uh, your Jewishness. Uh, a lot of it happened iteratively with our authors. So I remember my first interaction with Claire, I think, you know, I asked Claire to write one of the essays and I think you wrote back Claire and said, okay, but are you also including this? And that happened with a lot of our authors and it, it sometimes resulted in things that we assumed were canon kind of being dislocated. 
In some cases, it involved other ideas being put in. And it really, it was, it, the, the entire span of the book was 2015 to 2020 in terms of its production. And that canonical conversation happened throughout. I just want to add one other thing uh, to something you said before, Dan, because Claire pointed this out kind of late in the process of the book, was that it was also personal for the two of us. We grew up with this book, too. We were born a year apart, basically right around the time of the beginning of the book. And here we are now as professionals at the end of the book. I think if we're being honest, this is not just the canon in some objective sense that everyone would agree on, but I think, it, I think there's a lot of our experience of Jewish life over the last few uh, decades and noticing and trying to interrogate what are the intellectual origins and roots of that Judaism. I also just want to jump in to clarify something, which is there's two types of writing in the book, primary sources from 1980 through 2015, and then each of them is accompanied by um, a new essay that's a sort of a secondary source now by a contemporary scholar that seeks to explain the primary source, explain why it matters, why it was significant, the context in which it was written. And so when Yehuda says that we, you know, that a lot of the authors came back and said, well, I'm happy to write about X, but I really think that Y should also be in the collection. He's talking about those contemporary scholars. So none of our primary sources, none of those authors got any say in whether or not they got in the book. Some of them found out a little earlier than others based on whether or not they held copyright and we needed to ask them for permission. But one of my uh, favorite interactions that I've seen about the book is one of our authors saw the table of contents and posted on Facebook, oh, I guess I'm canonical. But I think that that clarification is important, just that our primary authors um, didn't have any say on whether they got in or not, but our secondary writers, our commentators, had a little bit of input. There's a, a bunch of ways in which I, I read this book, and even just from the table of contents, felt like there's a mirroring of other genres of Jewish writing happening in a bunch of ways. So first off, the word canon, when I hear canon, I think of like biblical canon, Torah, prophets, writings, all of that stuff. That's when I hear the word canon, I think of that more than I think of other kinds of canons, although there's arguably other Jewish canons. We could talk about Talmudic canons, we could all of that stuff. Um, but what I loved is, so when you bring up the commentary, it, at many moments, um, and I think maybe even in most, the commentary is substantially longer than the excerpt that you started with, which felt to me very much like how the Talmud works, where there's like, theoretically, the Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah. The second part of the Talmud, the Gemara, is commenting, in quotes, on the Mishnah. But really, it's doing its own work. It's taking a little segment of text and then going on often for a very long time on that couple sentences. You know, it's taking a few sentences and going on for many pages. And I thought that that was a really cool move for this book, because it's, it's not just sort of like a reference book of here's a bunch of essays that existed between 1980 and 2015. It's here's a little a little nugget from a bunch of essays. It's not the full essays. And then we're going to really try to contextualize it for you, which I think is helpful for somebody reading. Um, I, I was curious, though, like, was that kind of on purpose? Like, what, what, were you trying to mirror commentaries, the, the modalities of like commentaries on commentaries on commentaries that we see in our traditional Jewish sources? Or was that just sort of what you happen to go with? And if it sort of mirrors other Jewish texts, cool. One of the things that new teachers always do is assign too much reading. And you learn over time that you can actually assign very little because it's the discussion that happens in the classroom and it's your role as a teacher of unpacking that short reading or unpacking the reading of any length um, that really makes it meaningful. And I think that the book reflects that insight maybe to an extreme, maybe even a little bit too far. But it basically is starting from the point that sometimes a paragraph or two is all you need if you have the right teacher to then unpack it for you, put those two paragraphs into context. And so to me, I imagine the reader who might be, you know, either put off by or intimidated by some source that has this huge reputation as being difficult or as being provocative or whatever, that a paragraph or two fine that'll engage them, but then the accompanying essay is really where the, the deeper engagement and the learning is actually happening. 
I want to add one other piece also, just because you mentioned the, the biblical canon before as one of the templates. Biblical canon is unusual in our tradition as, the, as a closed canon, where there's a clear determination of this is holy and this is not. Uh, most of our canons um, in Jewish life have not been that kind of closed canon. And the Mishnah from the third century is a good example to that effect. The Mishnah is not a book that is determining which traditions are holy or right and which are not. The Mishnah is not really a law book. It's a study book. Uh, it's meant to help people kind of understand the big, uh, the legal questions and the uh, and, uh, boundary questions of Jewish life. And if you study the Talmud, you realize that there's all this other stuff that you need to know or to bring into conversation with the stuff of the Mishnah that's equally contemporaneous to the stuff of the Mishnah and actually equally holy. So I, I see our book much more in line with the Mishnah, if we can make such a comparison, then in, in terms of how we think about canon, then it is the Bible. It requires a commentary. It requires all of the other intellectual stuff that's out there in the world from 1980 to 2015 that we didn't happen to include in this collection. But it's really useful to start a set of really important conversations about the big meta themes of Jewish life in this period. And it gives you boundary posts and signposts to help to, to conduct that kind of conversation. I'm really glad you said that, and I'm sad that we don't have a video podcast right now, because in talking about the biblical canon, I happen to be sitting at a table with a copy of the first book of Enoch in front of me, <laughs> which is one of the books that did not make it into the closed biblical canon. Although, part of uh, for people who listen to the show, they know that I'm kind of on a mission right now to like reopen the canon in many ways, which I want to talk about with you. I mean, I've been talking about the book of Jubilees, which I'm like fascinated, fascinated by, which is another one of those books that didn't make it in. The reason why I bring all this up is because it is absolutely what you said before you, like, it's these ongoing, I don't know if it's, I don't know if conversations is the right word or debates is the right word or just evolutions of societies, like a whole slew of things come into play in determining which books make it in, in quotes, and which books don't. Um, historically, even with the Talmud, I mean, the, the people who put the Talmud together, um, the, the second part, the people who put the Gemara together, they left out two entire orders of the Mishnah. They, they, they said, uh, the, all that stuff about agriculture and all that stuff about purities, we're not going to bother with those except for the part about blessings and the part about menstrual impurity. That's the only pieces out of the, all of these books we're going to talk about. And that's a choice. That's a powerful choice that ends up affecting the future of Jewish tradition in so many big ways. And like, there's an argument that like, maybe we lost a ton by not having canonical in quotes, by not having Talmudic texts that commented on those other parts. And similarly with the Bible, like, maybe we lost a lot and that we're not wrestling with all these angel human children that come up in Enoch. Um, and the, it's a very funky, cool book. People should read it. Um, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's a loss that we're not wrestling with the cycles of time and jubilees where the entire universe is broken down into seven year blocks. And, um, like, what could we learn from that? Like, there's all of these things that come up when we look at the texts that aren't in. And so I'm curious. I'm going to make a terrible pun because that's what I do. Uh, I, I hear canon as like canon with two ends and then another end with shots fired, like boom, canon, like, there's a power here. There's an authority here when you make a canon, C-A-N-O-N, that is, it's not that it's being violent. It's not that it's an actual canon shooting at people, but it is powerful. And so I'm curious if you can reflect a little more about like, what is it to make some of these decisions um, for you with this book, but also maybe a little more generally, what are some of the questions that come into play when we are asking questions of like, which texts are in and which texts are out? Like, in what ways is that bigger than just like which words are going to appear on the page? To your first part about, you know, what do we lose when uh, things are left out of a canon? That's basically why I became a Jewish studies academic instead of a rabbi. I mean, there's many reasons, but that's, that's a major one, which is I don't like party lines. You know, I don't want to be limited to what made it in. I want to be able to teach Enoch or Jubilees. I mean, I'm a, I work in the modern period, but you know, I want to teach a class where we're reading Hegel alongside our Jewish sources rather than restricting ourselves to the Jewish sources. So I'm with you. We need to read what's outside the canon as well. And I certainly intend that people should read what's outside of the new Jewish canon. And I think maybe you and I differ a little bit on this. I think to call something a canon in the year 2020, I do that with every critique of canon that came out in the 90s 
that shaped my education, right? One of the sort of defining conversations of my undergraduate education was a friend turning to me in senior year and saying, well, now that I've read all the deconstructions of Plato, I guess maybe I should take a class on Plato. <laughs> in editing a book called Canon, I bring all of that with me. And to me, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. And yeah, we're calling this Canon, but it covers 35 years, a blink of the eye. And also probably within our own lifetimes, we'll see some of these pieces that are in here fade into total obscurity and prove to be anything but important while others will, will rise. And so I see it as sort of a placeholder, a moment of reckoning, a moment of saying, here at this particular moment, these are the pieces we think people should know, but with a great deal of humility and also a, a recognition that we made mistakes. There, there are things that should be in here that are not. And uh, we, re we welcome that criticism, and we see this as an opening of a conversation rather than a closing. I share some of that snark. I think there was a, a bit of a wink with the New Jewish Canon as a title as opposed to a New Jewish Anthology, right? That we wanted to play and poke a little bit and to talk about importance. So it's not just anthology in the sense of here's things people should read, but like let's actually start a conversation on what was really important about this period of time. I think, however, in a way that might be different than the biblical canon analogy, I think it's going to be, I think there are a few places where our critics can identify, here's where we think Yehuda and Claire had their thumb on the scale, here are the political or ideological biases of the book, but we worked pretty hard to try to actually balance out those ideological biases and to say important is, is, not, is not a normative statement of these are the things that we want people to think about, for instance, the state of Israel. It's actually, here are the here are the main texts or issues that defines the conversation in the Jewish community about the state of Israel in this period, even if they make people uncomfortable. And I guess the other push that I want to give you, Lex, which is to your Jubilees Enoch thing. I took a class on Jubilees in graduate school with, with Jim Kugel, and at one point he said something to the effect of, you know, some Jews believe that every word of the Bible is significant. I'm not sure if that's true about the Bible, but I believe it about the book of Jubilees. So he's, it is, there, there is a strong argument for the importance of these books. I get that. But I want, the question you'd have to ask is like, could Second Temple Judaism and for first century BCE Judaism have survived in its entirety without the canonization processes that took place, the filtration, the the, the anthologizing, the organizing um, in that period of time that helped people to understand these are the dominant ideas and these are the recessive ideas. And, um, and I think that there's something provocative about, um, about like a 21st century Jew saying, oh, look, I found something really interesting from the Second Temple period that pokes at what we think is the Second Temple period. I think that's really important, but you actually need the canonical structure to be able to do that poking. Without that, everything is normative and everything survives. And we know through history that that's not the case. So I think our work as scholars in the present is partly to erect those kind of boundaries, not because we're trying to suppress certain ideas, but because we're also trying to create um, what you might call a kind of dominant conversation conversation and the recessive conversation, even if, even if the tool of that is that so 30, 40 years from now, people can come along and say, ah, they should have put this in, <laughs> or to, to be able to retrieve aspects of this period of time that didn't seem dominant at the time, but wound up being dominant much later. At the end of the day, how amazing is it that Enoch and Jubilees, that we have them today, even though they were not included in the canon? Although I think that part of why those books survived is because they were in someone else's canon. Correct. You know, and yeah. and and I think and they that only that, survived in other languages, not yeah, in in Ethiopic, right? I mean, like that. That's why I I I mean, there, there's an impulse in in me, and I and I think that you know, it's probably what you intend. There's it's like oh, I want to write a different canon, you know, right? Or I want to <laughs> gather a different canon because you know, right? And and that's that's good. I by the way, like my one uh, suggestion for the paperback uh, titling is that there's something that you you missed out on in terms of our modern times, which is that you could have titled it the New Jewish Canon Wink Emoji. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, it's interesting. Like I, I'm struggling to to figure out how to, you know, ask questions that wh when there's a book with just so much in it that allows you to kind of talk about some of the highlights uh, and some of your your decisions, you know, and put some some meat on that. 
you know, one of the things that there, there are two thoughts that that um, are, are occurring to me as I'm kind of looking through the table of contents, and one is um, how do we think about the people who like they're not writers, you know? And I'm thinking about like what if we were writing a, a book about the the new canon of basketball? It's like Michael Jordan hasn't written anything, you know, but that guy is the most important person in the history of basketball over this period of time. So is it only that if you know, that, that if maybe somebody who's important enough, people that are doing things that are important enough, like I'm thinking, for example, of Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, whose writing doesn't appear as one of the selections here. Uh, now, he did write some, but I mean, he wasn't really known for his writing. And yet, of course, it, it, there's a, there's an impact. And so some of the other works may, may be Im- impacted by that. And I'm wondering like, how you think about those voices, because I think about some of the people operating today who I think are doing some of the most important work in this decade, and they're not really writing. And so I wonder, will they be lost to a, a process like this? Or, or how do we think about what we're trying to capture? The other question that I had was um, about the way that you organize the material, because with the exception of these like four major categories, they're organized basically chronologically. And that struck me as interesting because especially in that last section on, uh, I think it's called Identities. And, um, you know, because it got me thinking about, well, isn't one of the most important things that's happened over the last uh, 35 years that all these kinds of kinds of Jews who were marginal before uh, are now doing some of the most interesting things. And yet that's kind of there, but it's a little bit lost in a chronological telling. One in which, for example, Rachel Adler is under the religion section, but other things having to do with uh, the role of women are in the identity section. So how do you kind of think about making those those interconnections and how do we really tell the story of what's happening, what's been happening in the Jewish world over these decades? I really do hope that this is a book that is taught and studied. And I think that when that happens, some of the, you'll find other ways to find a way through the book. I think another way, for instance, to demarcate this would have been instead of the categories we gave, we might have identified five or six major historical moments, 1980 to 2015, and then listed a few. In, in, in some ways, like Claire, it was upon reading the full manuscript that I was like, oh, wow, look how many of these essays reference the first Lebanon war. And look how many of these essays reference the 1990 Jewish population study, right? So there's a major milestones in this period of time. I think that would have created more problems because there are also so many interesting things that don't reference those historical events. So I think that the, this listing was the only way to do it. In terms of your, you know, you asked Dan a little bit about like, you know, Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who by the way does appear in the book, but only in the context of the Roger Kamenetz book, The Jew and the Lotus, when he's part of the delegation to the Dalai Lama. I mean, that's a good example of like where people with powerful ideas wind up influencing the canon without necessarily being the writers of the documents in the canon. Um, but same with Enoch, by the way. It's all over the Hebrew Bible, if you know what other people called Enoch. Um, partly, it's also a little bit of who's... Who, there were a few rules that we put in place about what we were including and not including. For instance, there's very little uh, actual scholarship uh, of, as primary text in this, in this volume. I felt mixed about that as a scholar of rabbinics. Like, oh, wow, how could you leave out this formative piece in rabbinic scholarship? But the truth is, not that many people know it, except, except by default. Like, if you studied Talmud in the academy at some point in the last 30 years, you were probably influenced by Daniel Boyarin's intertextuality in the reading of Midrash. But it doesn't have that, it doesn't have that quality as a document or a text that people would, be know, would know and think about and talk about. Uh, and the other side is, we left out all, everything you might call like culture. We don't have cookbooks in here. We don't have, uh, we don't have music. We don't have poetry. And on one hand, part of it is like, oh, well, maybe that should be another volume of the New Jewish Canon. But it also just helps to narrow what's actually here, uh, which is uh, ideas and debates that have currency. And in that respect, I would hate that somebody would find this as a time capsule and say, Judaism 1980 to 2015 was entirely defined by this. And that's why we make that really clear in the introduction of what's in here and what isn't. There's some inception happening because you keep on bringing up exactly where my next question is thinking about. Culture, that's where I'm going. Um, To play the game that I hope every one of your readers is playing in in asking, oh, what would my canon be? Like that to me, I really, it sounds like that's sort of your intent. And it's, it's a quest that I think is beautiful for people to think what would my canon be? To me, 
1980 to 2015, there's a few things I would I would really have on my hill to die on, like this must be in. And I'd start with Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. I was thinking that too. Um, I would also put in Rugrats. By the way, not um, I, I think all of these things have huge problems and huge amazingnesses. So Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song, which, you know, famously on Saturday Night Live, you know, he lists off a bunch of people who are Jewish, makes one of the only like well-known Hanukkah songs to the broader population of all time. I'd put Rugrats Passover um, and Rugrats Hanukkah maybe collectively as a millennial biblical document. Find your nearest millennial and ask them about it and they can tell you about what a Macca baby's got to do. Um, Seinfeld. Like, like these are things that sort of pop to mind as like, if we, were, if we were doing more of that time capsule effort to go with what you just said, Yehuda, like if we were trying to do more of that side of thing, which I get is not what you're trying to do necessarily, we would absolutely bring up both the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song and all of the problematics of looking out at society and looking out at celebrities and being like, oh, look, a Jew. Um, like that would be sort of the commentary if we were doing that. And with Rugrats Passover, we'd be, oh, like we're, we're putting, you know, anachronistic portrayals of modern Yiddishisms into an animated feature so that kids think that that's what Judaism was 2000 years ago. Like maybe that's a problem. Maybe it's great. Um, yeah. That would be the analysis. Basically, I'm curious to hear more about that because I think that's a huge question, both about like how we do canons now and how we do canons historically. Because when we start to talk about questions of folk and elite of culture, we seem to have patterns in what we're leaving out. And I think that I, I do want to voice some love for the pop culture pieces. Not that any one of them, not that I think Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song is like the greatest thing of all time, but that I do think that it has a big, it, it plays a big role in this period of time. Well, if you're going to list, you know, if you want to do a pop culture canon, um, please don't <laughs> leave out the Northern Exposure episode uh, where Joel has to say Kaddish for Uncle Manny. Which I, which That's is before nice. Alexis time. It's before, right. And, and, and there's a, there's a history there because it's the first major Jewish ritual on national television. And it, it links in all sorts of interesting ways to the intermarriage conversation at play in the American Jewish community at the time, because uh, spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen the episode, by the end, he, he stops looking for 10 Jews and instead says Kaddish with 10 friends. We're linking it in the show notes so that folks can find it. So take a look, folks. Yeah, I think that's a I think it's a thrilling conversation. I do think it's a different project. Um, and I think it's a companion project because I think if you wanted to study a contemporary moment, you can study it with this body of text or you can study with that body of text. And I similarly, Lex, you would have to say like, what's the cookbook that I wish I had from the Second Temple period, which would help me understand Second Temple Jews as much, if not more effectively, than what they curated as the dominant ideas that they wanted continued from their time. So I, I'm, not a, I'm not an elitist in that sense of these are the important things and that's the folk stuff. I, I think that divide is, is overplayed. I just think that in order to put together a book, you have to know what the parameters are and boundaries of your project and then to, and then to, and to lean into that. And I, do, I would love to see a new, new Jewish canon volume two that actually looked at whether it's food practices and folkways, music, poetry, literature, art, all of that is, I think, and I think it's probably two or three volumes. For those who are going to use this as a teaching tool, I would encourage people to do exactly that. Okay, this is, what's, this is what Jewish population studies are, are, being, are talking about in 1990. What are Jews talking about in 1990? And where are the places of overlap between the organized Jewish communities conversation and the majority of American Jews conversation? But there's another really important piece, which is this book is not a statement of what should be the important Jewish conversations from the period 2015 to 2045. It's also not, it also doesn't take a position on whether the fact that these were the important ideas from 1980 to 2015, was that good or bad? It doesn't take a position on that. Um, but it is going to feel uncomfortable to activist types who are going to look at a book like this and say, I hate this because this was what's holding back the Jewish community that we want. 
But I'm hoping that those people will look at it, will read this book and say, now I understand why these ideas were so hegemonic in this period, even if that's actually displacing what should have been hegemonic. And just to give one really concrete example, our book does not engage in any serious way with the Jews of color conversation that's now um, one of the most critical conversations in American Jewish communal life today and is badly overdue. It doesn't engage with it. The reason for that is that our hypothesis, or at least I'll say mine and Claire, you can agree or disagree on this, is that that conversation really doesn't start until after 2016. It doesn't mean that there aren't authors and writers who are agitating for it prior to that. There are organizations on the Jewish communal map who have been agitating, but there has been a sea change in five years about how to construct that conversation, how to retrieve buried voices, how to legitimate new voices. And I think that that's a really critical piece of the new Jewish canon 2015 to 2045. But if you're looking at this book and saying, I'm frustrated by the Jewish community during this time period, and not reading this book as, and reading this book as prescriptive, then I think you're missing what we're really trying to do, which is it's not prescriptive, it's diagnostic. And I think in that sense, it can be a tool for Jewish activists who wants the Jewish community's future to look really different than its past. Yeah, by the way, I'll note that uh, it didn't even occur to me as we were organizing this conversation, but you know, our, our book of podcast episodes is coming out soon, and uh, our podcast started in 2016. So it's, it'll be actually an interesting dialogue between, between the two books. And your podcast also, because of the nature of podcasting, is responding in real time mm -hmm. uh, to things that are of interest rather than with more of a historical lens. Um, I want to connect two dots in what Yehuda just said, which is as the book was going to press, there was uh, simultaneously a huge, I don't know what the word is, kerfuffle um, online about how to count Jews of color, right? How to number them and whether the number of Jews of color in the United States was quote unquote significant. And there were, you know, essays flying back and forth and listservs where sociologists were attacking one another by name and then the emails were getting forwarded. It was really pretty ugly. Our book does not anticipate that, doesn't speak to it, it can't. But if you turn to our book and you look up the 1990 National Jewish Population Survey, you can begin to see why we're talking about sociological studies at all in the year 2020 and what's at stake when we make numbers and the number of Jews who say this about themselves or who say that about themselves, why that becomes a template for, creates the template for setting the priorities of the community. And it's a whole process. And that is something that we chart and discuss in the book. And it's also very powerfully critiqued. And so to somebody who wanted to enter that conversation and say, well, it's not about whether Jews of color make up whatever percent of the American Jewish community. It's about choosing as a larger community what our values are and what our priorities are based on those values. And I think that our book does give that language and it's available for people to use in the present and the future. Since the, the table of contents for your book first sort of was public, or maybe the description of your book, I forget what, like a, a number of months ago when the first public materials about your book came out, um, there was some, in my view, productive discussion related to the question of three voices who appear in your book, Stephen M. Cohen, Ari Shavit, and Leon Wieseltier, who have each um, in recent years, since 2015, been accused, and I, th I believe all three have admitted wrongdoing along lines of sexual harassment of women. I, I wanted to name that specifically so that you could talk about the decisions that went into including those voices in particular. I think it intertwines with broader conversations we've already had about how you made decisions about which texts are in the book. And I think about it as an activist, which is one of the hats I wear when I approach Jewish life. Like I, I do hold many of the reservations that Yehuda, you mentioned. Where I look back, I mean, for, of those three voices, Stephen Cohen, Ari Shavit, Leon Wieseltier, I know one of those voices best. I know Stephen M. Cohen's voice best. And I look back at the, the history of conversations in this period, 1980 to 2015, about, say, Jewish intermarriage. And you're right that he was the voice that had the biggest sway in the community. That's true. But I look back on that and I think about, okay, so there were a series of decisions 
made by various publications, by various organizations, large national publications, large national organizations, where there were a bunch of people saying stuff, doing studies uh, related to Jewish intermarriage. And Stephen M. Cohen was consistently placed sort of front of mind to the public, despite the fact that there were people like Calvin Goldscheider, people like Egan Mayer, people like um, saying very different things about Jewish intermarriage. And so I get that it's it's not inaccurate. It's It's correct of each of you to say that like, the voice here that got the most play, that influenced the most people, was in fact Stephen M. Cohen's voice. But the question that I continually ask is, what does it mean to reproduce that voice after we've already identified the flaws there? And including, and you both acknowledge this in the intro, like, that there are some who believe, not everybody, some who draw ties between Stephen M. Cohen's actions and his actual scholarship about women and reproduction. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about those head on since there's been some discourse about it since. For sure. Um, so let's say a couple of things. First of all, um, I'm glad that you and that you in, in playing this out, you indicate that there is a school of thought that says there's a deep connection between this, the research and the behavior uh, of this particular scholar as is men, in many cases, when you talk about um, uh, men and well, men and or other people who do bad things, is there a connection between their ideas and their actions? That's fair play for an academic and rigorous discussion of their legacy and their scholarship, and that's part of my essay. I wrote the essay on Cohen and Wertheimer, and I engage with that, I cite that scholarship, and I think that that is part of the discussion and part of the analysis. On the most basic level, I was trying to kind of wrap my head around the magnitude of Stephen M. Cohen's impact on the Jewish community. In the period of 1980 to 2015, you can find it's all public record in the Berman Jewish Policy Archive, which Cohen for a time was the head of. on the Berman Jewish Policy Archive, Cohen was the lead author or uh, one of the lead authors on 35 Jewish population studies. That's one per year. And that means the national ones, obviously Pew study, the 1990 Jewish population study, of course, but also, you know, when the Jewish community of, I don't know, Tallahassee counts its Jews and figures out as a result of counting its Jews and as a result of a methodology that predetermines what a Jew looks like, right? That's part of the controversy that is tied into Jewish communal priorities, that's tied into money, that's tied into its present and its future. To look back at the period 1980 to 2015 and say, because of this person's actions, which become exposed in 2017, some people know about their 2018, some people know about them before, to say we therefore should not, should excise this person from the record of 1980 to 2015, I believe not only is a mistake in terms of understanding the period, but also winds up being a perverse injustice towards the people who have been resisting those ideas for a long time, because it doesn't help us understand why these ideas were so significant. It just looks like those people lost to some unknown, indecipherable force. You allude, Egon Mayer's allude is, is mentioned in the book in a different context. Uh, there are a number of other Jewish social scientists there, but if we're really gonna study the period of 1980 to 2015, I believe at a certain level, we kind of have no choice but to wrestle with the seriousness of the legacy of these individuals and their authors, and where it's appropriate to problematize or at least introduce the question of whether their scholarship is tied into, uh, is tied into their behavior. I'm not sure, actually I know that the amount of personal hurt and affront that these choices would have made towards people I know and care about, some of whom were victimized by these men, I, it didn't, I, I say this as in admitting my own wrongdoing here, it didn't dawn on me how that would come across to people as at the depth of that affront. Um, I think Claire and I were both caught off guard in that this happened as a result of a table of contents being online as opposed to the book. So the full picture wasn't fully there. I'm sure I would have thought about the rollout of this um, differently had I internalized what it would look like and feel like for people to see their, the perpetrator of sexual violence against them listed in this table of contents. But I'm not sure that that obviates whether for the purposes of this book, those, those materials have to be included. When the table of contents went live online on the publisher's website and a few people called attention to the fact that Stephen M. Cohen and a couple of others are are in here, um, the book was not yet at the printer. And Yehuda and I took very seriously uh, the critique that was leveled at us. Some of 
that critique became personal toward us, which was very hurtful. But we took the substantive critique of maybe these these men should not be, their ideas should no longer be reproduced. Maybe including them in a book called Canon is going to rehabilitate them. And we went back to the introduction and we wrote and rewrote a short section of it uh, much more carefully. And I'm very proud of that part of the introduction. And I'm pleased that it's gotten a very positive reception from people who have seen it. In the rewritten parts of our introduction, we acknowledge that we have three authors who were accused of sexual harassment and to varying degrees admitted to that sexual harassment and that we chose to include their writing nevertheless because we believe that their writing was too important in the period that we're covering to ignore and that without understanding both their writing and the importance that it had in the period, we can't really make sense of Jewish life today or the Jewish communal conversation today. In my view, sexual harassment in the world, including within the Jewish community, is a structural problem. And these particular figures, these particular authors have been called out and you know, acknowledged or apologized um, or whatever. But part of me thinks that, you know, in five more years, maybe another one of our authors is going to be revealed as being horribly sexist or being a sexual harasser or being horribly racist. We have to reckon with the structural problem and ignoring the individuals who we've identified as symptoms of the structural problem. It's like a Band-Aid over a huge problem. Um, it doesn't It doesn't fix the problem. And uh, we have to instead, um, we have to talk about them all the more so. We have to interrogate their ideas. We have to take that step back to think critically. Like just because Stephen M. Cohen, the most important sociologist of the era, said it so, doesn't mean it's so, right? Just because Stephen M. Cohen um, says that my grandchildren may or may not be Jewish because of whether or not I send my kids to day school, you know what? He might not be right. And uh, if we don't talk about him at all, we don't get the chance to say he may not be right. And here's why he may not be right, or here's how I'm going to make sure he's not right, or whatever the case may be. Not to mention, you know what, maybe my grandchildren won't be Jewish, but that's okay. Or maybe they won't be Jewish based on the way that I'm Jewish. Maybe their Judaism is going to look entirely different. And that's also okay. Um, That's the conversation I want to be having. But without him, Frankly, I can't have it or without acknowledging his role, I can't have that conversation. I do think that this kind of takes us back to the question of primary source and secondary source in an interesting way, which is what I haven't seen. So when that table of contents came out, I didn't see and I, I want, I'm like genuinely interested in this and I want to bring up like I didn't see people complaining that Mayor Kahana's voice is is part of this. And so Mayor Kahana, for those who don't know, it was sort of a, a, a right wing figurehead that is continually influential to this day for for all sorts of groups and associated with the Jewish Defense League. I think Um, we could say racist. I mean, he was declared Um, that by the Knesset of Israel. Yeah. I and I I'm not bringing this up as like a gotcha thing for you or for people criticizing. But like I I I genuinely think that there's a little difference here, which is that Mayor Kahana's voice in this book is in a debate with Yitz Greenberg. And it's not just his writings or his speech. It's it's a little bit of a different kind of approach. And what it allows for is, and, and look, Shaul Magid, who has been on our show, and he provides the commentary on that, like, Shaul Magid is writing a book-length piece about Merika Hanna. And so, I guess if I'm being honest, when I hear a response about how we need to wrestle with Stephen M. Cohen, absolutely, I agree with that. I fully agree that, like, any story of 1980 to 2015 needs to address Stephen M. Cohen and the way and the the ideologies that he espoused in those 35 pieces and and how and those who he influenced. I think that that can be done precisely in the ways you talked about. By the way, like Reb Zalman isn't a voice here, but he's a, he's mentioned and he impacts it. Like there's a way in which people could be confronted, people could be discussed, but not given that you know proverbial book in the canon. I get that. That you're you're not endorsing people by giving them a voice. I, I guess this brings up broader questions about platforming, about 
what it is to offer up a voice. And I'm curious to hear a little bit from you about that, because when I hear, when I read some of the critiques of their inclusion, it's not that Stephen M. Cohen or Ari Shavit or Leon Wieseltier were, were mentioned or that their thought was, it's that they sort of had their byline on this in a way that Mayor Kahana is slightly different. So I don't know if I, I'm curious if this helps open up any broader conversations for us. I'm not, I'm, I'm not meaning to just like, engage in an act of like, did you make some huge mistake? I'm just curious what conversations this opens up. Part of the advantage of Kahana in debate with Greenberg was that a major feature of Kahana's effectiveness was his rhetoric as a public speaker and the existence of a, of a record, a transcript, right? Based on it, it's a publicly available YouTube video of the debate helps our, our readers understand that, you know, you could find Kahana's writings, but the real thing that w- that made Kahana work was as a as an orator, and he winds up living on as with his very dis- easily distillable ideas in ways that are very different than a Jewish population study. So I, I think our objective was what's the best vehicle to capture these key ideas and thinkers of this period of time, and in some cases it's going to be a debate, and sometimes it's going to be a written piece. I really think there's a difference between platforming people by giving them, uh, giving them a voice to speak their ideas versus studying people. I think that that's an essential distinction. I think we have to hold to it. The people we were platforming in this book were the scholars who wrote commentaries. That's what we were platforming. We allowed them to write um, opinionated pieces, well-researched pieces, rigorous pieces. We pushed them editorially, but we gave them voice. That's the activist side of this book, was identifying all of these voices who were going to help be the interpreters of the past. I, didn't, I, I still do not see the studying of, um, of, of the works of problematic people to be, the same, to be that activity of platforming. And, and, I, and I, I, this, is, this is personal and institutional. We think a lot in our own institution about who, who do we put on the stage. Um, and I think that there's a big difference between who you put on the stage and who you put on the source sheet. And I think we have to hold to that because, you know, Lex, Jubilees is horrible in many respects. I know, right? I know. Right? And, and, and I put Kahana on the source sheet too. Right. I, like, I, so from I, my yeah. standpoint, the primary sources in this book are the source sheet and the secondary sources are the people who are platforming. I actually want to go to a, a different question that, that came up uh, when you were talking about the Mayor Kahana debate. Is that like, for example, and I, this is, you know, goes back to what I was saying earlier, but um, I, I think, for example, like when we think about the impact of some of the people in the book as opposed to their writing. So, for example, Yitz Greenberg, the piece that is in the book is actually a piece that most people have not read, that's hard to read. Being one of the people that most in love with his thinking, I find that piece very difficult and not really capturing what I think is so genius about him, as opposed to when I was at the Hartman Institute some years ago and he spoke, that talk changed my life. But it was not his writing, it was his speaking. I guess my question is uh, about the idea of selecting writings, you know, in in the book. But also my question is is a little bit deeper than that. I think it does go to the question of of a podcast. And, you know, Yehuda, you have a podcast too. uh, So it's not not meant to be a, uh, you know, a a knock on you. Uh, It's more a question of whether in the times that we live in, is it possible that, you know, like a book is not a medium that kind of captures what we ought to be trying to capture. And that's not to say that it doesn't have its place. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have written this book, but I'm, I'm wondering in a way, like, where do you put this book in the context of, of a larger kind of communal explorations of what we ought to be exploring that are going on today? And I suppose in a way I'm asking, like, we might have said in 1985 that a book like this would be what we imagine as the major contribution to to a dialogue that we're trying to provoke. Whereas I feel almost in 2020 that the role of a book ought to be to spark conversations like this on a podcast or other means like, you know, blogs and Twitters and whatever tweets. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that really what's changed in our time is that a canon is almost something that definitionally 
uh, can't really exist in the way that we've thought about canons before, even if they could have existed before, which might have been debatable. So I'm wondering how you place a, a book like this in, in the time in which it comes out in 2020, as opposed to the period that it explores. I'm doing this uh, pedagogy training for teaching online right now, and, and they keep trying to have us watch videos and TED Talks and things. And I'm the person who always goes and says, retranscript. Because for me, watching a video, it's, you know, in one ear, or in my eyes, and, and right back out. And I learn only, only through reading. So for me, a book is the natural medium. But I don't think that, you know, just because this conversation is going to be recorded and curated as a podcast, I don't actually think that in substance, it's any different from any other commentary on a canon, you know, so today we have this medium where we can preserve the spoken word, or we can preserve, you know, on video, a conversation, whereas before maybe the commentary happened and was more ephemeral and it disappeared and maybe some of it was written down. Um, so we have a lot more commentary because we can preserve so much more of it. But is it really any different? It's a conversation about a book, about the written word. It's a conversation about ideas. Um, I don't really see such a big difference in the way, in the substance of what's happening, even if it's happening in a slightly different format. We're talking about ideas that matter, which is at the end of the day, a statement that ideas matter. Um, and I, I stand behind that more than anything else. You don't want podcasts to end books. That's a disaster. What you want podcasts to do is to create access to ideas for all the people in the world who are looking for something beyond the book, who are going to feel moved by a spoken voice in their ear while they're jogging that actually lives in dialogue with what happens like visually when you actually confront a book. I do think, I'm not, it's not just blowing smoke, you guys have broken new ground on the Jewish podcast space, no question. So when someone studies this period and says like, what were the real changes around the world of Jewish ideas, Judaism Unbound is gonna get a chapter. And you know what's gonna happen in that book? Some scholar is gonna to listen to all the episodes and then they're gonna realize that the only way someone's gonna really understand what this was about was through transcribing a seven minute section of your conversation with, I don't know, B'nai Lappy. To say like, oh, now I'm gonna like, I got it, uh, a seven minute transcription and now I can study it as text. So I, I think our, I, the reason that you put a book into the world is not to argue against podcasts, it's not to argue against YouTube videos. It's precisely to just widen the discursive space that we have to be able to engage with the ideas of our time. I really appreciate how both of you have talked about like what you hope people, like how people will actually use this book. I think it's so rare that we actually get a picture of like, what do authors want us to do with a book like this? Like, so I guess to close, I just ask, like, a person has listened to this episode. Their response is, I am going to get this book now. What's your dream or set of dreams for how a person would use this book? And maybe, to the because we've talked about this a little already, like, the next steps they'd take from the book. Yeah, I came home from a vacation and the book had already arrived. And Stephanie, my wife, was had been home that week. So she had gotten it first. And her, her copy, I got a bunch. So her copy had like seven folded over tabs of the essays that she wanted to read. And I was like, that's great. You've already figured it out. This is a choose your own adventure that it doesn't, the chronology will not really help you. I love the idea of picking up, looking at table of contents being like, wow, there's an essay about the art scroll sitter. That's interesting and weird. Like that doesn't look like any of the other pieces. And it actually is it's just, it's such a great essay on, on how the, even just the typeface that, Art Scroll introduces to the sitter changes the way that the prayer book gets put together. It's the first major innovation in prayer books in, in centuries. So, um, so I like the idea of, of pick it up and find the thing that interests you and go from there. But I, um, a second thing I would say is it's for those, for those who are actually uh, synagogue goers, this is like a dream shul reading book. I'm a big evangelist for reading in shul. Um, if you're going to be there, bring a book and it's like perfectly sized because it's like, you know, five page essay. That's like sermon length. So, um, so I think that that's, uh, that's, a, that's an ideal setup. And third is this is really a studyable book. So I would love to see whether you have a formal leader or whether it's just a book club of other, other people who are interested in a Jewish conversation, because again, the pieces are bite-sized. 
you can, as a, as a book club, say, we're going to read these two or these three short essays about the Lebanon War, and then we're going to talk about, like, how did the Lebanon War influence the state of Israel, and how does that in, in turn influence us as, um, as, as, as people who are watching, observing the, the, the state of Israel in the world. So, um, so I think that, I think it really is studyable, and, and, and my dream for the book, it, more than it just sitting on someone's bookshelf, is, is that it really opens up and guides conversations, especially among groups of people. I'll just add one more one more quick story, which is I have a colleague here at Northwestern who's a philosopher and happens to be the president of his synagogue. And he was asked to teach over the summer and he'd heard about our book and, and he so he's teaching our book. And I did a little cameo appearance this week and in preparing for it, he said, Claire, I've never taught something that I know less about and I've never had a better time teaching. And all he's doing is he's reading a couple of weeks ahead of his students and he's found that that it's just because he's a good reader that the book is enlivening and exciting and that he's able to bring that to his students and together it's just been an electric kind of experience and to me that's that's amazing thank you both so much for joining us this has been a fantastic conversation thank you for the invitation it's been great thank you both and thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter or our Instagram. Those are both also Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can email us, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that via judaismunbound.com slash donate on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>